I love the the segue with on the flip side. It was seamless, seamless. Yes. Sweet. Hello and welcome back to the Europolex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and with me, of course, is my very good friend, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi, Ewan. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, things are slowly starting to get back to some weird normal for me. I've started, I went to the office for the first time today for my day job, which was an experience. Um, let's see how long it lasts. <laughs> I like the idea that you have a day job and that this is the equivalent of your like Batman hours. Yeah, th- this is definitely, time. yeah, this is definitely my, my passion project, Ewan. <laughs> Should we do the headlines, Gabriel? Yes, why not? Let's let's get started. Let's start in North Macedonia, where Zoran Zaev's centre-left SDSM, whose electoral alliance we can, narrowly won July's election by just 1.3% over the centre-right Vumro DPMNE uh, coalition, will return to government after an agreement was reached between the party and the Democratic Union for Integration, the DUI. The DUI are indirectly affiliated to the SND and represent the interests of the North Macedonian Albanian minority, being the largest Albanian party in North Macedonia and enjoying the role of kingmaker for the better part of two decades now. Under their governing agreement, Zoran Zaev will hold the role of prime minister until 100 days before the next parliamentary election, which is currently scheduled for 2024. If the government makes it this far, this would be the first time an Albanian minority politician would serve as the Prime Minister of North Macedonia, a point which was core to DUI's demands throughout negotiations and during the election campaign. Now I'm going to move on to Golfgate, as it's known in Ireland. Um, So Ireland has been rocked by a COVID-related scandal, which has infuriated large swaths of the country. To celebrate the Parliament's Golf Society's 50th anniversary, very important indeed, the Society held a dinner which was attended by 81 high-profile individuals uh, from Irish politics and society. In attendance were um, TDs, or members of Parliament, senators, former MEPs, broadcasters, a Supreme Court judge, a minister, so basically everyone was there. The only issue with this was that uh, to stem the spread of um, COVID-19, the government itself had limited indoor events to 50 people while ensuring that protective measures were also taken. The organizers attempted to circumvent this restriction by splitting the dinner in two with a removable partition, uh, putting 45 in one event and 36 in another. Uh, to add fuel to the fire, uh, the day before the event was held, uh, the Taoiseach had announced new measures which restricted indoor gatherings to just six people in most cases. Um, a violation of these measures um, will ordinarily result in a fine of 2,500 euros or even a prison sentence of up to six months for the organizers. Inevitably, news of this event, which broke in the next day's press, and when it became clear that the event had complied neither in letter nor in spirit with any of the government's own restrictions, public health advice or social distancing rules, uh, people began to heavily criticize everyone connected to, to the event, which, as I said, was quite a large swath of um, Irish political um, society. Uh, the scandal has rocked the government coalition, which is made up of uh, Fine Gael, which is affiliated with the centre-right EPP, Fine Fáil, affiliated to Liberal um, RE, and the Green Party, 
Dark Larry of Finafal, uh, became the second minister for agriculture in the government's two months in office to resign, um, did so in disgrace, uh, as did the deputy speaker of the Senate, uh, Jeremy Bottomer of Fine Gael, um, who also stood down. The replacements cannot take office yet, um, at least not until the parliament reconvenes from its summer recess, at the end of which has been brought forward as a result of what is now known as Golfgate. Uh, in addition to these resignations, several backbench TDs uh, and senators have had the whip removed, uh, and the police has initiated an investigation into the event. Pressure has been mounting on Seamus Wolf, a sitting Supreme Court judge who was Attorney General up until eight weeks ago, and Phil Hogan, the European Commissioner for Trade, to resign as well. Uh, there is a particular eye on Phil Hogan, who, in addition to attending the dinner, also lied about undertaking a 14-day quarantine when he returned to Ireland. He was stopped by the police for using his mobile phone while driving, uh, and entered and exited uh, Kildare County, which is under localized lockdown and has strict travel restrictions in place. The Taoiseach, Michael Martin, and the Tainster, Leo Varadkar, both called on the commissioner to consider resigning. And on Wednesday evening, just as we were wrapping up our recording, Phil Hogan did just that, becoming the first commissioner of the von der Leyen Commission to resign. Who knew that golf could be so controversial? Yeah, not me. Travelling from one end of the EU to the other, we wanted to highlight a very uh, rare breed of Cypriot poles that dropped last week, uh, this time in the north of the island of Cyprus, uh, ahead of the Turkish Cypriot presidential elections. Now, northern Cyprus is, of course, only officially recognised by Turkey, but the Turkish Cypriot leader, as the position has become known in the UN and the EU, is an incredibly influential representative of the community and in the unification talks. Uh, and according to the poll, uh, incumbent Turkish Cypriot leader, Social Democratic Mustafa Akinci, and the leader of the leftist party CTP, which is uh, an affiliate of the SND, Tufan Erhoman, would compete in a runoff election. Both are supporters of a federal solution and are predicted to get 23.2% and 18.6% in the first round, respectively. Their opponents, Ersin Tatar and Kudret Ozesay, Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of the Turkish Cypriot community, respectfully, are, according to the poll, left out. Both are seen as sceptics regarding the continuation of reunification negotiations, and Tatar is heavily favoured by the Turkish government. The Northern Cyprus elections will take place in October after being postponed from their initial date in April due to the coronavirus pandemic. Moving on to the European Council, the most powerful body in the European Union, as we all know, uh, as it's made up of the heads of state um, or government of all 27 EU member states. It's met in the last week by video conference to discuss the ongoing situation in Belarus, the situation in Mali, as well as the recent deterioration of the situation in Eastern Mediterranean and the relations with Turkey as well. So lots to discuss. Um, among other things, the council announced EU sanctions against Belarus and called for violence against protesters to end there. Speaking of the situation in Mali, it's time for some international news as new political turmoil arises in West Africa. The president of the Republic of Mali, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, was ousted from office by a military coup d'etat. This event occurs after the eruption of public protests since June over allegations of contested legislative elections, negligent economic administration and inefficient tackling of corruption. Political leaders from Africa have called for the reinstatement of the ousted president, while Boubacar Keita's opposition has celebrated his removal. 
Recent talks between leaders of the coup and opposition parties have resulted in no compromise for a transitional cabinet, but one of the coup's spokespeople has stated that the final say on a new government should be from the people of Mali. So keeping on with international news, uh, this time somewhat closer to home, we go to Russia, um, where opposition activist and political leader Alexei Navalny fell ill while on a flight, which had to be diverted and land early due to the intensity of his illness. A Russian state hospital claimed that no poison was found in his system, but upon a medical evacuation to Germany, uh, doctors in Berlin have said it is very likely that a toxin um, has been present. Uh, a cup of tea Navalny was photographed drinking at the airport before flying has been suggested as the sort for the toxin. His wife and supporters have accused the Russian government of a cover-up of his poisoning. Parallels have been drawn not only to the poisonings of uh, Alexander Litvinenko and Sergei Skripal in the UK, allegedly by the Russian government, um, but also very similar circumstances during the attempted murder by poisoning Anna Politovskaya on a flight in 2004. She was later shot dead in a 2006 attack. Um, at the time of the recording, uh, Navalny's uh, being treated in an induced coma in Berlin under government protection. Naturally, the Russian government uh, continues to deny any involvement um, in the incident. We've talked a lot about Balkan elections in the first eight months of this year. It's been a busy region for Europhilex, and this week we're looking forward to another in Montenegro. One of Europe's youngest states breaking away from Serbia in 2006. Previous elections in 2016 were threatened by an attempted coup with links to both the Russian and the Serbian governments. With us to impact what's to come is Luka Jukic, our Balkan correspondent. Hi, Luka. How are you doing? Hi there, Ewan. I'm doing good. Happy to be here. Great to have you on the podcast yet again. So let's jump in with the incumbents, the largest party, DPS. It's the Democratic Party of Socialists, which are affiliated with the S&D group in the European Parliament. Um, they've won every election since Montenegrin independence. This doesn't look like this year that's going to be that much of a difference. Why are they so hegemonic as a party, Luca? Yeah, exactly. So um, I think you've touched on basically the most important element of Montenegrin politics, and that is this dominance of uh, the DPS, which in other words is kind of the, the party of Montenegro's president, Milo Djukanovic, and he is basically the kind of mastermind behind this whole system which has been labeled um you know non-democratic by i don't know many watchdogs and whatnot and even with you know within montenegro itself there's a lot of um dissatisfaction with this kind of political climate um where people essentially see him as a kind of um maybe not quite dictator but somebody who has enough connections that he's basically able to keep himself around in one position or another no matter what um because basically um, Milo Djukanovic, who's now president, um, has been basically leading either as prime minister or president or in some other powerful position since 1991. So since basically Yugoslavia fell apart, um, or at least the Yugoslavia that everybody thinks of. Um, it survived, as you said, until 2006 as just Serbia and Montenegro. Um, but basically, uh, Djukanovic got his start um, when uh, Slobodan Milosevic was still in power. And then he was prime minister then and eventually became president towards the end of the 90s. Um, he kind of drove Montenegro towards independence. Um, then he had a brief semi-retirement from 2006 to 2008, when in reality he still led the party, but he wasn't prime minister. Um, and then came back to politics and basically since 2008, again, has just been um, either prime minister or president or I think minister, defense, minister of defense briefly. So he's basically 
the big man in charge of everything in Montenegro. Um, and a lot of the kind of, um, I guess, a lot of the questions around this election are whether or not, as you said, the DPS will win again, which it looks like they will, but whether or not they'll get enough seats to actually um, form a government is the question. They're already, I think, governing with a paper-thin majority um, with in a coalition with a bunch of other parties. And it looks like they're actually going to um, receive a pretty um, bad result relative to past years. So uh, one way or another, it's going to be quite interesting. So what's behind this uh, downward slide of the DPS's uh, electoral performance in recent years? Um, well, so I think in large part, um, it has to do with this, you know, with this figure of Djukanovic and his very long rule, because I think people, um, I guess you, you see this in a lot of countries, and I guess especially with Belarus right now, where even when these kind of strong men are popular amongst the segment of the population, I think over time, a lot of people just get sick of them increasingly, because basically every political decision that's taken is kind of attributed to him. So eventually, um, with certain things, so basically, for example, uh, Montenegro joined NATO, and that's when there was this attempted coup. Uh, and basically, a lot of that is because there's, you know, uh, Montenegro has a large Serbian population. There's a lot of kind of um, anti-NATO sentiment going back to the 90s when NATO had a bombing campaign against both Serbia and Montenegro um, during the Kosovo War. And so there's a lot of just, um, as in Serbia, there's, you know, there's a lot of similar sentiments, but not amongst all the people, but, you know, amongst large segments of the population, kind of anti-Western, anti-NATO, um, maybe more pro-Russian, pro-Serbian. Um, so then there's basically, in 2019 and earlier in 2020, these kind of sentiments um, are kind of coming to the fore again, because there was this controversial uh, kind of religious bill, which basically repossessed all the property of the Serbian Orthodox Church um, that was built before 1918 in an attempt to kind of re-establish the Montenegrin Orthodox Church um, and kind of, um, I guess, exclude the influence of the Serbian Orthodox Church, which is very influential in, Ser well, in Serbia and in Montenegro. Um, but basically that was the spark for um, a very large wave of protests that are kind of pro-Serbian in character, but also just generally, I guess, include a lot of um, element, kind of anti-corruption and anti-Jukanovic elements, where it's kind of, I think, galvanized a lot of the opposition and maybe um, more, well, I guess, obviously more than in, recent, in past elections, considering the DPS's polling um, at its lowest point in quite a while. You mentioned these protests being uh, of a mix of, of sort of anti-corruption campaigners and, and uh, pro-Serbians and other things like that. Who is benefiting? Which parties have benefited the most from this sort of uh, uptick in social action and against uh, the Dukanovic regime? Um, yeah, so this is, I guess you can definitely see that the, the, the alliance that's polling second right now, the Alliance for the Future of Montenegro, is the most supportive and the most kind of tied to these um, to these protests, um, basically, for example, the um, the main party in it, the Democratic Front, was um, like sixteen of their MPs were basically banned from the vote on Parliament on this religious law because they caused the kind of ruckus. So it's like they're they're very much the um, representing those kind of more pro-Serbian interests, the more socially conservative 
um, factions, but there is there is some um, diversity within the alliance. Obviously, it's it's I think four or five parties, but it's definitely more the more pro-Serbian um, option, and it's polling second, so it, it's projected to win around twenty-five percent of the vote. So it'll be a very I mean it, I guess it'll be the most important opposition alliance or party that enters parliament. So when President Dukanovic this week has said that there are attempts to use this week's elections to bring Montenegro, quote, under the umbrella of, of, of Belgrade and Moscow, that influence led by foreign countries, he claims, what's his aim there? Is his aim to paint the opposition as, as foreign funded or is it, is it something darker? Uh, yeah, I think you can see it as that. I think it's, you shouldn't necessarily take that claim at face value considering he's a guy who's been in power for 30 years and is trying to hold on to it. So, of course, this is, I think, just kind of a classic attempt to just paint everything as kind of foreign-backed, foreign-funded, um, just to kind of scare people. Although, I don't think he's wrong in kind of pointing out that there is there is maybe foreign influence in there, and there is obviously, for example, people who are more pro-Serbian in general obviously want to be more oriented towards Serbia and more oriented towards Russia. But of course, he is taking Montenegro down a kind of pro-Western, pro-NATO, pro-EU path. So he's all, it's not as if he's um, necessarily some sort of pure nationalist trying to like keep Montenegro independent from any other sphere of influence or anything like that. Just finishing up, you mentioned obviously the disquiet amongst Montenegrins or some Montenegrins over uh, NATO accession and, you know, with DPS, sort of the largest pro-EU accession party on their, uh, one of their lowest results ever, is this election going to have big consequences for the future of EU-Montenegrin relations? So I'm not sure if that can be said for certain. Obviously, it depends on the eventual result. Um, but I, I don't think that that's really truly under question because um, I don't think there's, I don't think Eurosceptic parties actually have uh, a path to a majority or anything like that. I mean, I think the real, um, the real problem for Montenegrin accession is probably actually closing the chapters that, they that they've opened because I think the country still has a long way to go. Um, although it is considered kind of first in line, it's definitely nowhere near ready. Um, so yeah, I think that's yet to be seen and there's definitely a lot of work to be done before Montenegro joins the EU, but I don't think that's necessarily directly under threat. I think this election is more than anything a sort of referendum on Dukanovic and an attempt, I think, by all the opposition parties to get him out of power first and foremost, or at least get his party out of power. Thank you very much, Luca. This has been really uh, informative for a country that I know a lot of our listeners won't know too much about. And uh, we'll all be watching Podgorica very carefully this weekend. Thanks very much, Luca. Thanks for having me. Are you listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on any other platform that allows for reviews? Please drop us a review if so, and why not make it five stars if you think we're worth it? It will only take you a minute and it will mean the world for us. Also, if you like our podcast and you want to help us grow, be sure to also subscribe and, of course, tell people about us and share our episodes with family and friends. If you have an idea for a segment, any thoughts on topics we should be covering, or if you just want to say hi to us, please shoot us an email at podcast at
After the great success of Who's Who, showcasing the EU's commissioners, uh, we have embarked on a new challenge at EuropeLex Podcast to bring you the hottest trivia about Europe's political parties. Each episode, from now on, we're going to take a country at random and pick two parties at opposite ends of the political spectrum to compare. The twist is that the points of comparison will be different every week. It could be newest versus oldest, biggest versus smallest, or something a whole lot stranger uh, and random. Uh, Soon, hopefully, we'll help you wow your friends and colleagues with disastrously niche politics information, thanks to this segment that we're calling On the Flip Side. This week, we're going to take you to Italy, where we would love to introduce you to Italian parties with a very strange connection to the party that represents the largest area of land and the smallest area of land. We, sa- we said this was going to be niche. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the party which represents the smallest area in the Italian national parliament. And this is a party from the Aosta Valley in the northwest of Italy. This party represents a constituency in the Senate of the Republic of Italy of just over 3,200 square kilometres. The party is called the Valdostan Union. With just one senator, it is the joint smallest party delegation to the 315-seat Senate. Competing as part of the Aosta Valley Political Coalition, which is in turn a member of the centre-left coalition nationally, the party is rare in Italian politics in that the party only contests elections in the the first-past-the-post element of the Italian political system and only in this region. In fact, they were the only party in the 2018 election to only contest a first-past-the-post constituency and not the proportional element of the Italian political system. The party, founded immediately following the Second World War, is a centre-ground party advocating for the French-speaking Italian minority in the Aosta Valley. Valdostan Union has been a consistent presence on the regional legislature of the Aosta Valley since 1949, winning an outright majority on three occasions, most recently in 2003. The party is, as one might expect, aligned with the European Free Alliance Group in the European Parliament. While not a member itself, it is aligned through local and regional coalitions. So, on the flip side, Partito Democratico uh, is the party that represents the largest area in the Italian Parliament. While only coming second in the last election, the party's title as the party of the largest area is gained not through domestic seats, but through the party's control of the single largest constituency in Italian politics. Now wait for this. It's the constituency of Africa, Asia, Oceania, and Antarctica. Um, PD represents Italians across these four continents, which alone gives them an eye-watering 97.5 million square kilometers of constituency to cover. I somehow doubt that door-to-door campaigning is what works um, for uh, those races. Um, And that figure uh, doesn't even include the area represented by the party's uh, domestic MPs. Uh, PD has been a major political force since its foundation in 2007. Um, as a merger of the main forces of left-wing and centre-left uh, political movements in Italy. Um, it received its best result in the 2013 general election, in which it won a plurality in both houses of parliament. And the Nicoletta, Matteo Renzi and Paolo Gentiloni in turn became prime ministers of Italy between 2013 and 2018, before the party experienced a crushing defeat in the 2018 general election. Despite this, the party is currently part of a coalition governing under independent Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, alongside the Five Star Movement. 
The Democratic Party is part of Europe's traditional center-left bloc in the European Parliament, uh, the Socialist and Democrats group. Under current leader Nicola Singaretti, the party has emphasized policies to fight climate change uh, and a commitment to the European Union. While some seem to think that Europe elects is an institution of the European Union, we aren't. We are a private organization run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors, and we are only able to do what we do because of our supporters and donors. Everything we do, this podcast, our website, our Twitter account, and other social media are all done because of supporters like those on Patreon. As a Patreon subscriber, you don't just get to support us, you also get access to exclusive discussions, special content, and more. Access all of that from as little as one euro a month. Head to our Patreon and subscribe. On August 29th, residents of Latvia's capital, Riga, will be electing new members to the city's council. Uh, with us to discuss this is Anton Skusevs, um, previous colleague of ours at Europelex, and an expert and enthusiast of Latvian politics, among many other things. Welcome to the podcast, um, Antons. I'm pleased to be here. Hello. Hi. Um, so yeah, let's just crack on and discuss um, uh, these elections that are just a few days away uh, when we're recording. They might have already happened when you listen to this, uh, so we're going to try and make it general. Um, I thought we'd kick off about you know the current leadership in Riga. It's been quite a chaotic time for the city. Uh, there currently isn't technically an elected mayor. Um, can you just tell us a bit about uh, the current leadership of the city? Yes. Uh, so at the moment, as you correctly say, there is uh, no mayor in Riga and uh, no uh, elected body that uh, governs Riga. I mean, elected by the people. Because the uh, Riga city council in Riga was dissolved by the parliament earlier this year in February and uh, as it is uh, uh, stated uh, in Latvian laws uh, after a municipal council is uh, dissolved the new snap election is scheduled and until the election uh, government together with the Saima national parliament uh, appoints so-called temporary administration, which basically consists of uh, three officials. Uh, each of them uh, represents uh, different uh, ministries. So up until February, before the whole process started, that's now led to this um, delayed and afterwards delayed um, extra election. Mayor of Riga was uh, a man named Oleg Spurovs. Uh, and he represented the center-right local party known as Honor to Serve Riga. Can you just give us an overview of um, of Honor to Serve Riga as a party, where it stands um, ideologically, and what the chance is of it electing the next mayor as well? Um, yes, um, basically the Honor to Serve Riga party point is that it originates uh, from uh, but the Spirma party, the party of uh, Einar Schleser, who was an influential uh, politician after that, but then he retired from politics and the parties that were uh, connected uh, and uh, supported him uh, were eventually dissolved. 
and some um, members that were elected from these Schlesser's uh, party uh, elected to Riga City Council, they, uh, they uh, joined forces and formed a like, localist party that uh, concentrates uh, on uh, capital issues in Riga City and uh, named honor to serve Riga. But the interesting thing is that since this party was founded, it only ran, of course, in Riga municipal elections, and it always formed a joint list with the uh, center-right party Harmony, or in Latin it is Saskanya. Um, so it's uh, basically uh, mm, haven't got any, mm, any particular, any independent political profile. Can we move on to talk about Harmony, which is the center-left party um, in Riga, um, which has traditionally been the largest party in Riga politics? Um, as you've discussed in this chaotic events of last year, lost control of the mayoral office, and looking at polls from uh, recent months, it's, it's declining. Um, can you go into more detail about why it's currently struggling and whether you think it's lost that clear leading role as political force in Riga in the, for the long term? Yes, you have to know that Riga is divided ethnically. Approximately half of uh, Riga's population is uh, Russian-speaking. There are not only ethnic Russians, also Belarusians, Ukrainians, but uh, they're mainly Russian-speaking, and the other half, approximately, is Latvian-speaking. Uh, so, and this ethnic divide also affects the political climate uh, in the city, and uh, Russian-speaking voters uh, vote for one party, for some parties, and Latvian-speaking voters vote for another party. This situation is, of course, also on a nation, on a national level. And the Saskanya is one of those parties, and is actually the main party, the largest party that is backed, that is supported overwhelmingly by Russian-speaking electorate. Yeah, so indeed, after uh, this party, Saskanya or Harmony, rised in 2009 with their then young and new leader, Nils Ushakovs. It was very popular, it dominated the uh, political scene, and in 2013 it joined forces with an honor to serve Riga and uh, got a very good majority. So it is Latin political spectrum which is divided. There are a lot of parties. It is actually a uh, remarkable situation when one party, one list, has a full majority. Yeah, so there is no need for coalition. Same situation was in 2017, although the majority was uh, less, but Harmony won, uh, with honor to serve Riga won the, the election. And it is basically because they communicated with their Russian-speaking electorate very well. The Nils Ushakos, their leader, was very popular. But after 2017, even before, there were large corruption scandals in Riga municipality. But after 2017, the major corruption problems and the concerns about corruption uh, 
were revealed in uh, Riga public transport company and because of uh, those uh, concerns and the facts that were revealed, the government decided to uh, remove Mayor of Riga and the Harmony leader Nils Ushakos from his office. It was in 2019 and uh, mm, then Ushakos, I'd say, uh, basically escaped from uh, Latvian, from active Latvian politics because he decided to run for European uh, Parliament and was elected to the uh, European Parliament. But the problem was that uh, he was basically uh, the only uh, well-known and, 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 and popular and the only clear leader uh, in harmony. So there was a vacuum politically when he left in terms of leadership. Yes, exactly. And, uh, uh, and it turned out that uh, without Ushakos and uh, also without uh, long-term leader of honor to serve Riga, Andris Ameriks, uh, so without those leaders, because they were both elected to the European Parliament, without those leaders, uh, Harmony Party and Honor to serve Riga Party were uh, unable to reach an agreement uh, although they uh, tried to do this, but uh, their uh, like new agreements and their new coalitions were unstable. Also, I should note that a uh, very important point is that for before uh, Harmony in municipal elections in Riga always ran together with Honor to Serve Riga. So there were joint election lists, but now they are competing against each other so this uh like this strong block uh which which was an, uh, on previous election uh it no longer exists when i looked at the recent polls um, for riga the biggest party uh, well the party who's currently looking to get the plurality as you say no one uh, is likely to get the majority but uh, the plurality is going to a man called, and I, I, I'm sure this will be pronounced differently than how I say it, but Martin Stakis, who is backed by Liberal Party Development 4 and a centre-left party, The Progressive. What can you tell us about him, um, his stance, and what his electorate looks like? Martin Stakis, uh, this is how his name is pronounced in Latvian, is a new politician and actually in uh, these election in this municipal election there are a lot of politicians with uh, uh, little political experience so uh, martin stachis was elected to saima the national parliament uh, during the previous uh, parliamentary election in latvia in 2018 from development four he represents exactly this party, uh, this alliance. Then he also was the parliamentary secretary, so he was member of the parliament, but he represented the Ministry of Defense. So why is he gaining traction then with voters, do you think? And do you think there's any chance of him using sort of this moment of division and sort of disintegration of the politics of Riga to potentially build a coalition to become mayor, or as you say, leader of the council. Is there a chance of that? Yeah, 
I think that uh, Martin Sturges uh, could become a mayor because uh, he doesn't have some sort of uh, big scandals behind him and uh, his figure I think uh, is not uh, controversial so I think that uh, not only his party but, but some other parties can uh, agree on supporting him because uh, as uh, Pauls uh, suggests indeed uh, his list is uh, going to be and is expected to receive their plurality and I think uh, why uh, Development 4 and the progressives are leading in polls is not because of Martin Stachis, but uh, because of uh, urban areas and capitals uh, in all countries, I think, are traditionally more liberal and uh, uh, like uh, more center-left or even left-wing. And here we exactly see the alliance of uh, Liberal Party, and uh, if we're talking particularly uh, about Latvia, that indeed in Riga, uh, the development for has uh, the largest support, and the progressives, this is party uh, that has little influence of national level. The progressives ran in parliamentary election, in European election, but uh, they failed in both uh, these elections. And, and, and despite uh, those uh, weak results, they still, in, in Riga, in Riga, in this urban area, they have um, a decent support. And if we combine those liberal, this liberal stronghold and this center-left progressive stronghold, this is why this list uh, is ahead of others, according to the polls. Cool. Um, and I thought we'd just uh, round up, you know, um, city council elections, uh, you know, they vary a lot uh, across countries in terms of how much independence a city has uh, to rule legislatively. And usually the political climate of a country will also dictate the level of interest in these type of elections. Uh, they can sometimes be seen as sort of um, giving a temperature of, uh, you know, the support or the progress of individual parties or politicians. Uh, and sometimes they're just not covered at all and seen as quite um, uninteresting. So what's the case with these elections in Latvia? Are, are they being followed across the whole country? Do you think that the, um, the, the results, say, if, for example, uh, Stakis would become mayor, would that have any ramifications um, in national party politics in Latvia. Yeah, so um, there is uh, no direct correlation uh, between uh, national politics and capital politics uh, in Latvia because the situations uh, are different. But I would argue uh, that Latvia is the country where uh, capital city politics are probably the most important from all, uh, let's say, European countries and from all EU countries. And uh, the capital city politics uh, have the biggest impact on national politics because uh, one third of Latvian population 
lives in Riga city. And uh, for Latvian politics, uh, those elections in the capital are really important and are really significant. And from uh, uh, 2009 and uh, until nowadays, there was always like confrontation and uh, national government and, and uh, they call coalition in the national parliament and coalition in the uh, Riga city council were in, in, in opposition and with this uh, confrontation because the uh, majority in, in parliament was, uh, let's say, was uh, mm, um, with parties that are uh, primarily voted by Latvian-speaking voters, while the majority of uh, in uh, Riga City Council uh, consisted uh, of uh, harmony and honor to, uh, to serve Riga, that was primarily voted um, by Russian-speaking voters. And uh, I think that uh, if uh, Martin Stachis uh, will become mayor, uh, those differences uh, will become smaller, um, and the, uh, this political landscape um, will become more uh, homogeneous. Uh, but uh, the possible problem that could be that, that, that indeed, in such a situation, um, Russian-speaking voters will be um, unrepresented both on municipal level and on national level, and this could cause uh, some, I don't know, uh, maybe not tensions, but at least dissatisfaction amongst uh, uh, the majority of uh, Russian-speaking voters, amongst uh, Russian-speaking community in Latvia. So potentially there'll be a disgruntled Russian um, segment of the electorate if, depending on the election results. So it'll be interesting to see how that impacts Latvian politics going forward. Um, finally, uh, just a little personal note, because I've, I've heard through the grapevine that uh, you've been um, you've been voting today and that it's your first time doing so. So I just thought, um, how does it feel to, to fulfill your democratic duty for the first time? And how was it to vote, you know, at a time of COVID-19? That's, uh, yeah, there was a little nervousness, um, first of all, because uh, it was my first time, but uh, um, secondly, because uh, indeed, because of the uh, at, because of the COVID-19 situation, there, there were now additional measures, uh, those face masks, uh, that uh, you can either uh, bring your face mask with yourself or you can receive one at the polling stations. Uh, there are uh, individual pens to uh, fill uh, the uh, ballot paper. Uh, but I, but I guess, uh, but I guess, uh, uh, anyway, for 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 uh, most of the people, their first time voting in an election uh, is uh, something uh, special and emotional. For me, as a person that is interested in politics and that uh, follows politics, it was definitely a special day because I felt that uh, I participate uh, directly in a. Uh, democratic process. Well, on that very positive note, 
Thank you very much, Antons, for uh, coming on the podcast to discuss the Regan um, Council elections. We'll, of course, be reporting on them uh, for Europe elects. Uh, so we'll bring you all the results uh, as soon as we can get our hands on them. Um, but um, yeah, thank you, Antons. Thank you very much, too. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuropeLX.eu um, and at EuropeLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLX podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hemingworth. The managing editor was Polychronos Karampolas, and the producer and audio engineers were Rafael Penurios and Leon Lisman. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, which is Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, and Guillaume Ferreira de Sende. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything was only possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Uh, yes, good.